This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode features discussion of kidnapping and violence that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. May 18, 1926, Venice Beach, California. Temperatures were only in the high 60s, but 35-year-old Amy McPherson was braving the Pacific waters. Amy loved to swim. As a world-famous evangelist and faith healer, she felt the beach was the only place she could get away. She often came here to escape the throngs of reporters and followers who were always clamoring for her attention. A few minutes of solitude helped Amy put her focus back on God. But as she emerged from the water, a man and a woman rushed up to her. They told her their baby was dying and begged her to come with them to pray for the child's life. Who were these people? How did they find her? Amy brushed off the questions and ran after them to the parking lot. They pointed out a car with a motor running. Their baby was in the back. With no time to lose, Amy flung open the door and bent down into the back seat of the car. Someone shoved her from behind. Amy tumbled to the floor. A hand grabbed her by the head and forced a wet cloth over her mouth. As she struggled, it dawned on her that she'd made a terrible mistake. There was no sick baby. Amy McPherson, world-famous evangelist, was being kidnapped. This is Hostage, a ParCast original. Every week, we tell the stories behind the most captivating hostage situations and the people inside them. We'll also cover the psychological tactics used in kidnapping situations and what the human brain does when held captive. I'm Irma Blanco. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Hostage for free on Spotify, just open the app and type hostage in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. This is our first episode about the kidnapping of evangelical preacher Amy Semple McPherson in 1926. Amy was the founder of the Four Square Church, an offshoot of Pentecostalism that promoted baptism and healing through faith in Jesus Christ. With her unique sermon style and revolutionary use of the media, Amy amassed hundreds of thousands of followers in less than a decade. But as a pioneering woman and an outspoken critic of many powerful people, she also made dangerous enemies. This week, we'll see how Amy's passion for the Gospels and gift for promotion led her to become one of the best-known religious leaders in America. We'll also discover how fame may have led her to tragedy when she disappeared one spring morning from the California coast. Next week, we'll see how Amy's world shattered after the kidnapping, when she and her mother were accused of fabricating the story. And we'll learn how she recovered from that traumatic day at the beach, which may not have unfolded quite like she claimed. Amy McPherson was born Amy Elizabeth Kennedy on October 8, 1890. She was the only child of Methodist farmer James Kennedy and his fiery wife, Minnie, who worshipped with the Salvation Army. Despite the difference in their faiths, James and Minnie shared a mutual adoration for their daughter. They showered her with love and attention, leading Amy to grow up confident and self-assured. Throughout her childhood, Amy went with her mother to Salvation Army meetings every Sunday. They didn't use pulpits or a formal liturgy. Instead, the movement held services in large open halls with people clapping and singing along to a brass band. This style of worship was unusual in Amy's small town home of Ingersoll, Canada, where most people were Methodist like her father. But Amy loved it. She delighted in the music and the energy of the crowds. She became so dedicated to the Salvation Army that she even converted some elementary school classmates, at least for the duration of recess. As she grew into her teens, however, Amy began to notice contradictions between what she'd been taught in church and the subjects she was learning in school. She was especially concerned about the theory of evolution, how could humans be descended from animals if God created Adam first? And why did her books claim the world was millions of years old when the Bible said the Lord created it in seven days? Amy had grown up with the freedom to speak her mind, and she felt no qualms about challenging church leaders to explain these inconsistencies. When they couldn't, she fell into despair. She felt as though she'd been lied to her whole life, but she wasn't sure which side was telling the truth. By her late teens, Amy was desperate for answers to life's most difficult questions. Who are we? Where do we come from? Is anyone else out there? And in December of 1907, she saw a poster announcing the arrival of a traveling preacher who might be able to provide answers. His name was Robert Semple, 26 years old, tall and wavy-haired, with penetrating blue eyes. 
He spoke with an intensity that struck Amy to her core. He convinced her that God was good, and anything that took her away from Him was bad. This was a simple enough concept, but to Amy, it was life-changing. Inspired by Robert's words and his overwhelming presence, she abandoned the Salvation Army and converted to his faith, the new Christian movement of Pentecostalism. Started in Kansas only seven years earlier, Pentecostalism taught that the miracles that happened during Jesus' life were still possible in modern times. Proponents of the faith, like Robert, claimed true believers could become conduits for the Holy Spirit. In doing so, they might gain the power to perform miracles, like speaking in tongues and healing people just by touching them. Most people in Amy's town, including her parents, thought the idea was a lie. As far as they were concerned, Pentecostals were strange, misled, or even heretical. But Amy was so moved by the handsome young preacher that she converted to his faith despite social consequences. Some thought she made this snap decision because she had a crush on the preacher. But Amy didn't think of it that way. She had a profound spiritual experience in Robert's presence. In her mind, he was a messenger from God. In the spring of 1908, at age 17, Amy agreed to marry Robert and become his helpmeet in the ministry. Her mother Minnie argued against it. Not only did Minnie distrust the turbulent Pentecostal style, but she feared that Robert was too poor to support her daughter. Amy insisted that God would provide, and with her parents' reluctant blessing, she married Robert in August of 1908. They began traveling around the country, preaching to crowds who adored the charismatic couple and their mission. They were young, attractive, madly in love, and filled with the Holy Spirit. Sadly, their joy was not to last. In 1910, during a mission trip to China, Robert got malaria. He died a few weeks later, leaving 20-year-old Amy pregnant penniless and stranded in a foreign country. Amy was devastated, but her mother, Minnie, quickly came to the rescue. Having recently left Amy's father to work for the Salvation Army in New York, Minnie sent her daughter money for two boat fares to the Big Apple. And when they arrived in mid-autumn of 1910, Minnie took Amy and little newborn Roberta into her personal care. Amy was grateful for her mother's help, but even so, the next few years were some of the most difficult of her life. She was despondent over Robert's death. Her faith faltered. After three years of believing that God would provide, she began to look for more mundane solutions. In mid-1911, she found one, 21-year-old Howard McPherson. Howard was an accountant for a restaurant in New York, as grounded as Robert had been ethereal. Young, tough, and ambitious, he was probably more the kind of son-in-law that Minnie wanted. And when Amy married him in the winter of 1912, she probably felt that her daughter was on the right track at last. Unfortunately, Amy's decision to remarry only made her more miserable than ever. After giving birth to her second child, Rolf, on March 23, 1913, 
she fell into a deep depression. Amy would afterwards refer to this time in her life as Nineveh to Tarshish, a biblical reference to the time Jonah was said to be swallowed by the whale. She heard the voice of God calling her to complete what she and Robert had started. At the same time, she felt compelled to fulfill the traditional duties of a wife and mother. The conflict between these two drives grew so extreme that it made her physically sick. She experienced heart trouble and hemorrhaging in her stomach. She underwent several surgeries. Nothing helped. By late 1914, 24-year-old Amy was lying in a hospital bed, begging God to let her die. Minnie was summoned to her bedside. The doctors and nurses said that Amy was sick beyond saving, but Minnie refused to accept the diagnosis. She threw herself to her knees and prayed, tears streaming down her cheeks. She told God that if he would save her daughter, she'd do everything in her power to support Amy in the ministry. Amy witnessed this scene as if she were standing on the other side of a thick glass pane. She heard her mother speaking, but the words were muffled. She saw a nurse holding her hand, but the woman seemed to drift away. As darkness closed around her vision, Amy heard the voice of God loud and clear. He said, Now will you go? At last, Amy understood. Preaching God's word was her true calling. Anything that took her away from that mission was a sin. That was why she was sick. Amy opened her eyes. To her surprise, she no longer felt any pain. And within two weeks, she grew strong enough to leave the hospital. She took her children back to the family farm in Canada. From there, she dispatched a telegram inviting her husband Howard to join her. Perhaps surprisingly, he took her up on it, and with his help in 1915, Amy Semple McPherson began her preaching career. Leaving the kids with their loving grandparents, Amy and her second husband traveled across the country by car, preaching the gospel and performing faith healings. Faith healings are one of the cornerstones of Pentecostalism. They involve a preacher laying his or her hands on the afflicted and praying for God to heal them. This may sound like a fantasy to some, but according to biopsychologist Dr. Nigel Barber, faith healing actually works at least to some extent. Barber likens the process to a placebo effect, which creates results by improving the patient's mental outlook. People who truly believe they will be healed sometimes are. Amy was careful not to take credit for these so-called miracles, even when they occurred on her watch. She told followers that she couldn't heal them, only God could, and he would only do it if they had faith. Apparently, that was enough for most of them. Over the next two years, Amy's fame as a healer spread like wildfire. Howard's, however, did not. He tried to follow in Amy's footsteps, but after a few years, he grew tired of standing in her shadow. And at the end of 1917, he left Amy to return to his old life. Thus, at age 27, Amy was once again on the road alone. And as usual, she reached out to her mother for help. 
Minnie kept the promise she'd made to God three years before. She packed up her life and the children and joined Amy on the mission trail. Despite their second-class status as women in the old-fashioned society, the mother-daughter team was unstoppable. Amy preached with passion and a frankness that appealed to thousands of small-town Christians. Minnie handled the logistics, collecting donations, and arranging places for Amy to get her message heard. As the crowds grew larger, Amy began to preach her own unique take on the Bible, which she called the Four-Square Gospel. The basic concept was that Jesus had four sides, the baptizer, the healer, the savior, and the future king. Focused on this vision, Amy sermonized. She healed, she spoke in tongues, and she taught thousands of yearning believers to do the same. In 1918, after almost three years of nonstop travel, Amy had a vision of a resting place. God was preparing her family a home in California. So she, Minnie, and the kids drove to L.A. There, they took up residence in a downtown bungalow built and paid for by her many followers. And Amy prayed for God to tell her what to do next. Up to now, Amy's ministry had unfolded mostly in small-town revivals. But Los Angeles was a fast-growing city, and it was full of evil influences. Inspired by God, Amy spoke out against bootleggers, dance halls, corrupt politicians. The press loved the story of the woman preacher taking on the man. And with their help, the crowds continued to grow. Soon, Amy began to feel that she needed a church home for the faithful. She and Minnie took a drive around the city, looking for a likely spot. Just north of downtown, they found a large, empty lot overlooking a lake in Echo Park. Amy knew the moment she saw it that this was where they would build. Raising a temple isn't cheap, and Minnie, who was Amy's full-on business manager by now, was worried about costs. But Amy waved her mom's concerns aside. She was certain that God would provide for them just like always. In 1919, the women and children hit the road again. They conducted 30 revivals over the next three years. Amy gained nationwide recognition as a leader in the fundamentalist movement, which stressed a return to conservative Christian values. With donations pouring in, on January 1st, 1923, the Angelus Temple opened its doors for the first time. It was a magnificent structure to behold, the first mega church in America. With a proscenium stage, stained glass windows, and a 120-foot-wide dome, the Angelus Temple held 5,300 people. But even that wasn't enough to seat all those who wanted to see Amy Semple McPherson. During the next few years, she held multiple services a day to houses so full, the lines often stretched around the block. She preached visual sermons that were half message, half theatrical entertainment with sets, lighting, sound design, and live performances. And in 1924, she devised a way to reach even more people by installing a radio broadcast station and spreading God's message across the airwaves. 
By 1925, Amy was reaching hundreds of thousands of people every week through the temple service and her radio transmissions. She'd promised to do God's work, and she was succeeding beyond her wildest dreams. Minnie was right beside her the entire way. She worked tirelessly to support the church and her daughter's vision. But beneath the surface, Minnie couldn't help but worry. She was certain that the devil never slept. And as she looked out at the sea of faces in her daughter's temple, she could see his minions closing in. Coming up, we'll see how Amy's growing fame led to her kidnapping and to Minnie taking the reins. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1925, evangelist Amy Semple McPherson was at the height of her power. Through her temple services and radio broadcast, she reached hundreds of thousands of people a week. She used these platforms to preach a version of the gospel inspired by her first husband, Robert Semple. Despite her success, however, Amy's mother, Minnie, continued to worry. She felt that Amy's focus on preaching blinded her to practical concerns, like the fact that certain people were turning against her. Local minister Fighting Bob Schuler, for example. Fighting Bob was one of the premier fundamentalist voices in L.A. Perhaps threatened by Amy's power, he told everyone who would listen that the woman evangelist gained followers by lying, cheating, and seducing them. And he wasn't the only one. Some members of the Foursquare Church itself were saying that Amy seemed inappropriately close to one of her followers, a 30-year-old sound engineer named Kenneth Ormiston. Amy had hired Kenneth about a year earlier to run the radio station and record her sermons. They worked closely together, and they had a remarkably good rapport. Amy insisted that they were just colleagues, but to many, Kenneth's wife, for example, their friendship seemed dangerously inappropriate. These were just a few of the many disasters waiting to happen as Amy's ministry entered its 10th and most successful year. Minnie tried to convince her daughter to be cautious, but Amy insisted that God would provide like he always had. So it was up to Minnie, the 54-year-old grandmother and manager of a multi-million dollar business, to fight off the devil alone. The first attack came in mid-1925. The Santa Ana branch of the Four Square Church refused to repay a loan of more than 10 grand from the main temple. To many, this was a sign of rebellion, and it had to be dealt with immediately. In October of 1925, Minnie took a crew and a moving truck down to Santa Ana and confiscated their chairs and communion set. Some understood this as a fair exchange for the loan payment, but others considered it a power grab. 
Minnie convinced those she could of her point of view and excommunicated everyone else. She hoped that by expelling bad influences from her daughter's church, she would silence them. But instead, the voices of dissent only grew louder. Disgruntled former church members complained to local papers, and the news began portraying Amy as a villain. Perhaps encouraged by the bad press, other rumor mongers moved in. Whispers about Amy's so-called affair with Kenneth led to articles blaming her for their high divorce rate. Fighting Bob Schuler preached that because Amy had left her husband for Jesus, she threatened to strike a death blow at the sacred institution of marriage. By the end of 1925, the stress of fending off enemies while running a massive ministry began to take a toll on the evangelist. Now 35 years old, with two teenage kids, she was working so much she barely slept. In addition to daily church services and radio broadcasts, she was running a school, a seminary, and multiple missions abroad. She grew nervous and exhausted. Minnie saw her health declining and encouraged Amy to take a vacation. But Amy couldn't give up her position as a leader of lost souls. The best she could manage was occasional trips to the beach, taking advantage of the open water to disappear. On May 18, 1926, she decided to do just that. She told her mother that she wanted to take a break and asked her to go along. Minnie was deep in the accounting books, but she was glad to hear that Amy wanted to relax. She encouraged her daughter to go and enjoy herself. Since Minnie couldn't join her, Amy invited her assistant, Emma, instead. The two women drove out to Venice Beach. It was a beautiful spring day, a little cool, but Amy wanted to go swimming anyway. She changed into her suit and waded out into the Pacific. She felt better almost immediately. Leaving Emma on the beach, she swam out into the deep water. She tasted the salt on her lips and felt the tide moving beneath her. Then, shortly after 3 p.m., she heard someone calling for help. She got out of the water and found a couple asking her to come heal their dying baby. Amy felt weary, maybe even a little annoyed by the interruption. Nevertheless, she knew her duty as a missionary. She followed the couple to their car, peered into the back seat, and then... Amy was shoved to the floor. A cloth was clamped over her mouth. As chemicals choked her, she began to feel the world going dim. Her mother had been right all along. The devil's agents were everywhere, and now they had her in their clutches. Back on the beach, Emma started to get worried. She was used to her boss taking long swims, so she hadn't noticed Amy was missing at first. But an hour had passed since Emma had last seen her, and when she called Amy's name, she heard no answer. Emma hurried to the lifeguard station. An alarm went up. Despite her fame, no one had spotted the evangelist getting out of the water, and there was no sign of her on the horizon. After about an hour of searching, Emma began to despair. The next service was scheduled in a little more than two hours. Thousands of people were expected to attend. Someone had to tell Minnie that Sister Amy had disappeared. Back at the parsonage, Minnie was still hard at work when the phone rang. The caller introduced himself as the general manager of the Ocean View Hotel. 
He informed Minnie that her daughter had gone swimming in the ocean about two hours before and hadn't been seen since. Minnie knew immediately what this meant. Amy had drowned. The hotel manager said that might not be true. No one had found a body. Amy could be anywhere. But Minnie wouldn't give herself that false hope. She repeated her conviction that her daughter was dead and hung up the phone. This may have been the most devastating moment of Minnie's life. She'd known Amy wasn't feeling well. She should never have let her go to the beach on her own. But now she was gone, her only child. And that meant Minnie had to carry on God's work alone. That night, she led the service to an overflowing crowd. At first, no one seemed to notice that Amy was missing. But as Minnie began to deliver the sermon, paper boys outside began shouting the headline, Amy McPherson believed drowned. The congregation didn't panic, nor did Minnie. She merely wrapped up the sermon and then settled in behind a microphone. Speaking to thousands in the temple and countless more listening at home, Minnie announced that Amy had gone swimming that afternoon and never returned. With a heavy heart, she said, Sister is gone. We know she is with Jesus. Amy's followers were stunned. Thousands rushed to the beach where they began a desperate search for the evangelist's body. Little did they imagine that their leader was hundreds of miles away, captive and unconscious. Sometime later, maybe minutes, maybe hours, Amy regained consciousness. She felt sick, perhaps a side effect of the drug that had been used to knock her out. A woman stood by her, holding a basin. Amy leaned over and vomited into it. At first, she thought she'd been in an accident, but she didn't remember anything about it. She managed to spit out a few words, asking the woman where she was and what had happened. Her companion didn't answer. Instead, she called out to someone in another room named Steve. A man entered. Seeing them together, Amy remembered everything at once. This was the couple from the beach. They'd kidnapped her, and now they were holding her hostage. According to the U.S. Department of Commerce Office of Security, one of the first steps to surviving a hostage situation is to be observant. They recommend noting as many details of the holding area as possible and memorizing any available information on the captors. Amy hadn't been trained in these tactics, but her years of experience as a woman on the road had taught her to be alert. She took in her surroundings, papered walls, an enameled bed, a bathroom with a tub and toilet. Then she observed her captors. Steve was about 40, heavy set, with thick brows and a light complexion. The woman, who the man called Rose, had olive skin and black hair in a bob. Amy had no idea who they were or how they knew her, but she soon understood all too well what they were after. Due to Amy's extensive following, the Four Square Church had become a multi-million dollar business. Steve and Rose told Amy that they planned to contact her mother and demand a $500,000 ransom. In today's terms, that's almost $7.2 million. 
The evangelist defied them. Her church would never be able to pay that much for her return, and she wouldn't want them to. Stephen Rose disagreed, but they added that if Amy was right, they'd get the money anyway by selling her to a slave trader in Mexico City. Faced with this fearful proposition, Amy resigned herself to a long wait. She spent the next few weeks in the cottage, pacing and praying, while her captors held her under constant watch. Once again, she was doing exactly what the Department of Commerce recommends in these situations, establishing a routine, getting exercise, and planning for an extended stay. Despite her best efforts, however, Amy soon fell into despair. Her nerves had been frayed even before the kidnapping. Now all she could think about was how many people she was letting down. She wanted desperately to get home. At times, she tried screaming for help, but no one heard her. The one gleam of hope in Amy's mind was the thought that Minnie was there to carry on. All these years, her mother had been serving God right beside her. And a few weeks into her captivity, she got news that made her feel the church was still in excellent hands. Minnie refused to pay for her ransom. She was convinced that Amy was dead. And according to the angry kidnappers, nothing they could say or do would persuade her otherwise. Amy was triumphant. These agents of the devil would not get her people's money. Stephen Rose tried to trick her into telling them things that only she would know so they could convince Minnie that she was still alive. But the evangelist refused. In response, Steve burned her hands with the lit end of his cigar. Amy withstood the pressure, and for a while, it seemed that so would her mother. But then, a few days later, Rose woke her in the middle of the night. She ordered Amy to hurry and get dressed. They were on the move. The kidnappers blindfolded the evangelist and led her out to the car. They made her lie on the floor, binding her hands and feet with cloth. Amy had no idea how long they drove. By now, she'd been captive for several weeks, and she'd lost her sense of time. According to the International News Safety Institute, this is one of the greatest dangers of being held hostage. Losing track of time can make people feel they are going insane. And unfortunately, Amy had failed to protect herself against this peril. Perhaps that's why she imagined they were taking her home. During the brief stops they made along the journey, she could see they were in the desert. Maybe this was Imperial Valley, a desolate region south of LA. Maybe her mother had made it clear that there would be no ransom and the kidnappers were preparing to let her go. Despite Amy's hope, things didn't turn out that way. After more than 12 hours, the car came to a final stop and the kidnappers ordered Amy out. They led her blindfolded into a small wood-walled space. Amy's heart sank as she realized she was not home, but instead had been moved to some remote cabin. Then the kidnappers broke the news. Amy's mother couldn't send the ransom because she had physically collapsed. Hearing this, Amy fell to the floor as well. She started shaking and sobbing, caving from the pressure of the last few weeks. Her mother was ill, the church was in peril, and unless God intervened, Amy would soon be sold into slavery.
coming up, we'll learn how Amy escaped and reunited with her mother, only to find that her trial had just begun. Now, back to the story. After weeks of being held captive in an undisclosed location, 35-year-old Amy Semple McPherson was moved to a new hiding place in the desert sometime in June of 1926. She'd managed to withstand the rigors of the hostage situation so far, but upon learning that her mother was ill, she had a violent nervous breakdown. It might have been hours or even days later when Amy was herself again. The first thing she noticed was that it was hot, much hotter than she remembered in the cottage. She muttered a complaint about the temperature and heard Rose respond, Now, dearie, if your mother behaves, you will be out of here perhaps by Friday. So Minnie was all right. The thought gave Amy hope. It also filled her with determination. The kidnappers were still harassing her mother even after the poor woman had collapsed. The very thought of it made Amy's blood boil. These people absolutely must not get the ransom. A day or two later, Amy saw her chance to prevent it once and for all. Since her breakdown, Steve had left her alone with Rose much of the time, possibly because she was too weak to cause any trouble. On this particular day, Rose told Amy she had to go into town to take care of some business. In the meantime, Amy would be left alone. Amy pleaded with Rose not to bind her. The captor insisted, but in consideration to Amy's poor condition, she left the bonds relatively loose. The moment she was gone, Amy sat up and started searching the cabin for a way to break them. The American Survival Guide notes that most types of binding can be cut by sawing against any right angle or sharp corner. Amy was lucky enough to find an even better tool. On the far side of the room, she spotted an empty five-gallon tin can with a jagged edge. Rolling across the floor, she reached the can and placed her bonds against the rim. She rocked back and forth, sawing through the fabric until at last she felt it slip off her wrists. Her hands were free. Amy praised God and prayed that she would be able to walk. She untied her ankles and climbed unsteadily to her feet. So far, so good. Seeing that the window was open, she hurried over to it and climbed out. For the first time in five weeks, Amy was a free woman, but she had no idea where she was or how long it would be before her captors returned. Putting her trust in God, she poured all her strength into her limbs and ran for her life. The International News Safety Institute reports that upon escaping captivity, a hostage should keep moving until they're in safe hands. Amy instinctively followed this advice, trekking across the desert for hours and refusing help from a man who looked threatening. Somewhere along the way, she managed to wrap her dress around her head and arms like a shawl, shielding herself from the sun. Neatly dodging the cacti and dry brush, she managed to stumble on for 20 miles without getting scrapes on her legs or shoes. Darkness fell, and still Amy found no refuge in her flight. At last, however, she saw a glow on the horizon, a town, 
Running on pure faith, she staggered forward until she found a house where a friendly couple answered her cries for help. Amy was saved. It was June 23, 1926. She was in Mexico, in a small town called Agua Prieta, about 650 miles east of Los Angeles. The couple who welcomed her gave her a glass of water. Then they called the police, who arranged to transport her to a hospital in Douglas, Arizona. The next morning, back at the parsonage in Los Angeles, Minnie got a call. A man on the line informed her that Amy had been found. Minnie didn't believe him. Since Amy's disappearance, she'd been getting messages nonstop, not just from the kidnappers, but from countless others who claimed to know what had happened to her daughter and why. Some said they had seen Amy walking across the ocean with her hands stretched out toward the setting sun. Psychics swore they had contacted her ghost, and some nasty gossip mongers believed that she'd abandoned her family and her church for an illicit love affair. Minnie was sick of the rumors. And yet, this time, the person on the other end of the line sounded credible. He gave Minnie a description that certainly seemed to fit her daughter. At last, the business manager decided to put him to the test. She told the caller to ask Amy what birthmarks her son and daughter had. She heard the man repeat the questions to someone near him. A moment later, he came back on the line and said, Roberta has a strawberry birthmark on her hand, and Rolf has a raspberry on his back. It was Amy. Minnie asked to be connected immediately. As her daughter took the receiver, Minnie could hear her praising God and weeping tears of joy. Minnie was nearly overcome herself, but she kept her head, knowing her daughter needed her now more than ever. She told Amy she would take the train to Douglas as soon as possible. In the meantime, she cautioned Amy not to tell anyone what had happened. Well, this may have seemed paranoid to the evangelist, but to Minnie, it was imperative. The police already knew about Amy's reappearance. That meant the press would find out soon. And based on Minnie's experience in the past few weeks, she was certain the media would twist the story to her daughter's disadvantage. They needed to control the narrative. Sadly for Minnie, it was already too late. Before the night was over, she heard paper boys shouting jubilantly in the streets. Amy McPherson, the world-famous evangelist, had been found. Details of the kidnapping quickly emerged. Once again, Amy had ignored her mother's counsel, and this time her decision turned out to be disastrous. Back in her hospital room, Amy read the first few newspaper accounts of her reappearance with pleasure, but then she began to see something profoundly disturbing. The rumors didn't abate. If anything, they gained momentum. Instead of reporting the story of her kidnapping as fact, the papers were hinting that it might be a hoax. They persisted in speculating that Amy had run away with Kenneth or disappeared to have a facelift, or slipped off to get an abortion. The kidnapping was treated as if it were a massive cover-up. Amy was flabbergasted. For the first time in her life, 
she had failed to convince an audience. As a result, her ministry and livelihood were now in question. And that wasn't all. A few days later, when Minnie finally arrived with the children, Amy could see the signs of worry on her mother's face. Something was wrong, very wrong. But before she had time to ask what was the matter, two men followed Minnie into the hospital room. With a stern look at the evangelist, they introduced themselves as Captain Klein and Joseph Ryan. They were from the LAPD and the district attorney's office. And they were here to ask Ms. McPherson a few questions about what really happened. Thanks again for tuning in to Hostage. We'll be back next week to discuss how Amy and her mother were prosecuted for a kidnapping that may never have happened. You can find more episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Hostage for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Hostage on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, don't take your freedom for granted. Hostage was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Hostage was written by Megan Dane, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Irma Blanco and Carter Roy. 